starting at verse 25, Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. What story are you telling to the world? Because you are telling a story. We all tell stories and the ideas and the things that we believe, the ideas that we hold, the things that we believe will determine what that story is. The Christian story is a story of a good God who made the world and made humanity to be in a loving relationship with him. He created humanity for himself. We, however, chose to reject that relationship and to take all of his good things but push him out of the picture so that we could be in charge, so that we could run the show. But despite then the hostility that that creates in the relationship with our maker, the good God who owes us nothing gives us everything through his Son, Jesus Christ. The Christian story is a story of God granting undeserving sinners forgiveness, salvation, and peace with him. We saw that last week in the section that we look at, looked at there. It is a good story, the Christian story. It is a story, in actual fact, that every other story that we love to tell is based upon. Where does the idea come from of a happy beginning that is ruined by wickedness with a hero who then overcomes adversity to defeat evil and rescue the girl? And when the credits roll at the end, the, the, the wedding celebration is off in the distance. Well, that's the Christian story. If you ask my children to summarize the story of the Bible, I've trained them to say, kill the dragon, get the girl. That's the whole story of the Bible. And it's the story upon which every other good story that we like is based. We saw last week that it is a story that all Christians everywhere are commissioned to go and tell. That's what we saw with the 72 others, we're told, who were sent out. 72, the number that symbolized all nations in the world and the others representing all who will follow Christ. Not just the apostles, but everybody who will follow Jesus is sent out to tell that wonderful story. But when we think about the stories that we tell, 
It isn't just the words that we use, but the lives that we live that determine how well that story comes across. Everyone knows, don't they? Actions speak louder than words. We say that, don't we? So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. What story are we telling with our lives? In his book, Intellectuals, it's either Intellectuals or The Intellectuals, the historian Paul Johnson uh, says of Karl Marx, father of Marxism, the self-styled champion of the working class proletariat, he says that Marx never ever set foot in a mill or a factory or a mine and never had any friends who themselves were working class. Marx himself had no wealth of his own, but he spent most of his time with middle class intellectuals and he worked hard to become like them in their privileged lives. He spent the last 20 years of his, his life living in comfortable, uh, in comfortable homes that had been given, he'd been given the use of by wealthy benefactors. And for the last 10 years of his life, Karl Marx had never uh, less than two servants waiting on him. Actions speak louder than words. Marx's verbal story said one thing, but the way that he lived his own life told a very different story altogether. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, Jesus is insisting that this must not be the case for the Christian. As he continues in this section about what it means to be one of his followers, Jesus tells us this well-known parable to make the point that the story that we tell with our words, that is a story that God's King has come to bring salvation through sacrifice and love, that story must be backed up with lives that are consistent with that message. To use the language of Luke chapter 10, Christians aren't just to be messengers, as we saw last week, but they're also to be neighbors. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to dig in. The parable is well known. I said that. The language of the Good Samaritan is familiar. Our culture uses it as well. It's a person who helps another person out when they're stuck. They're described as, he, he was a bit of a Good Samaritan to me at that point. But to get to the heart of the parable's meaning, we need to go deeper than that. It's not just about doing a good thing for somebody in a, in a random situation. It's about our lives reflecting the gospel of grace and love that we profess. And if we're going to do that, we need to understand three things from this parable. The first thing we need to understand is this, the problem of religion. The problem of religion. That's verses 25 to 29. And what I mean by uh, that is religion as it is commonly understood in our culture. And the lawyer, um, now this lawyer is not a secular lawyer. He is a, an expert in the law of God. That's, that's what this man's role would have been. He gives us a textbook illustration, I think, about what uh, our culture thinks about religion. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is, what do I need to do in order to earn favor from God? What do I need to do in order to earn eternal life? And that's what people think it means to be religious. You do certain, usually religious things, and by doing those things, you earn enough good points to merit entry into God's heaven. It's the way all the world religions operate. One thinks of Islam. Uh, follow the five pillars of Islam and you will earn approval with God. Even secularism in some ways, with the Bill of Human Rights, has its own version of works righteousness. It is the idea that by doing certain things, you will uh, you'll be okay. But that is the polar opposite of what it means to be a Christian. Last week we saw verses 21 uh, and 22 that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. He, he grants it. He reveals it. Uh, he gives it 
to those to whom he will. But this lawyer, this scholar in God's law, this theologian, this person who should have known his Bible has missed it altogether. And so Jesus responds. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. If you want to earn eternal life, lawyer, then keep the law. Now, there was a view going around at the time uh, when Jesus was ministering like this amongst the religious elite that Jesus in some way, uh, when he was talking about salvation as a gift, uh, salvation as something that he granted freely by grace, there was this idea going around that he was slackening the requirements of the law. And this lawyer, perhaps uh, uh, kind of an embodiment of the ones who were in verse 21, the wise and understanding, who keeps Jesus at arm's length here. Do you notice uh, his motive, verse 25? He stood up to put Jesus to the test. He's not saying, oh, what can I do uh, to be in right relationship with you? He's saying, what can I do? He's trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to keep Jesus at arm's length. And Jesus takes this opportunity um, to, to show him up. He thinks he's showing Jesus up, but it backfires. Because when he quotes the summary of the law, this uh, combination of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 from the Old Testament, Jesus says, yes, you're right. That is what the law requires. Now go and do it and you'll live. What Jesus is doing here is showing the lawyer that he doesn't really know anything or he doesn't know what he has spent all this time studying. God's actions towards his people have always been based on grace. They have always been characterized by him taking the initiative and demonstrating his love. Remember back in Exodus 20 where the, the summary of the Ten Commandments are given. They are given to God's people after he has rescued them. He has been gracious and then he tells them how to live. The law was never designed to be a way of earning God's favor. It was never a ladder that you climbed up to heaven. Rather, it was given to God's people in order to help them live in relationship with him. It was, it was given so that God's people knew what God wanted in order uh, for them to live in relationship with him. So it's as if he says, you are God's people by grace. Here is how you should live as God's people, a summary of the law. And here's Jesus saying, okay, if you want to adopt a religious approach to things, keep the perfect holy law perfectly. And in saying that, he's revealed the first problem with religion. And that is, it's impossible. It doesn't work. And the lawyer at this point should have cried out for grace. He should have said, you know what, actually you're right. And he should have humbled himself before Jesus and said, I realize I'm far too sinful to keep this law. Please grant me the peace with God that you've come to bring. But instead, like all legal experts, he looks for a loophole. 28, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There must be a way around this, he's thinking. If I can change the requirements of the law so I can define who my neighbor is in some manageable way, then that's okay. There are some people that I will be happy to love. People like me, for example. And of course, the language of neighbor taken out of Leviticus chapter 19, it is synonymous with brother in Leviticus. So the idea would have been that it would have been the people of God. Who is my neighbor, he asks. And so Jesus then turns to this parable and the lawyer gets the shock of his life. There's nothing endearing about the lawyer here. He's proud. 
He's self-righteous and he's superior. And that is exactly what a religious mindset does to you. If you can outperform others with your good stuff, if you're holier than they are, then you deserve God's approval. You must, right? And when you think like that, you can't but fail to look down on others that don't obey and don't perform and don't achieve as you do. Not only that, but if we look at the priest in verse 31 and the Levite in verse 32, these are the other two religious players in the story, we see that their attitude um, kept them from doing what the law required, namely loving the person in need. See, that's the second problem with religion. It isn't just impossible, but it makes people self-righteous and it makes them unloving. And that is not a story that anybody wants to hear. It's not a story that you want to hear, and it's not a story that our world wants to hear, and it's not a story that any Christian should tell. If you speak of grace and kindness and love in the gospel, but people only know you as proud and self-righteous and unloving, you may have facts coming out of your mouth that are true, but the story that you're living will drown those words out and make them sound like a lie. So firstly, if life and lip will match up, we need to understand the problem of religion. If we think that we can earn God's favor, it will make us separatist, superior, self-righteous, proud. The problem of religion. Alongside that, the second thing we need to grasp is the scandal of grace. Verse 30, the scandal of grace. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So, the Jericho Road was a, a notoriously dangerous place, and this man had fallen foul of some of, the, uh, some of the rascals, some of the brigands who plied their cruel trade there. Lots of people would have gone down and, and been robbed there. It was a place where robbers used to hang out. And this man's been stripped. He's been battered within an inch of his life. Quite literally, he's been left for dead. They thought they'd killed him. Now, as the story unfolds, the priest looks at the man. He decides to leave him to it. Maybe you can imagine him praying a very kind of, uh, a very kind of uh, uh, generous-hearted prayer as he went past. Oh, God, help that man. Or oh, pray for his family, something like that as he goes on. Next, it's the turn of the Levite. Levite, not as high-ranking as the priest, but still a servant at the temple. And interestingly, the language there about the Levite suggests that he actually went right up close to see the man. He went up to check, check the state that he was in, but he didn't bother to stop. He just went on. Now, as Jesus tells the story, the lawyer, as he's listening, would have been expecting, he said, I know what's coming next. Next, it would have been uh, the, the Jewish threefold story, first of all, uh, we've got the priest, then the Levite. He probably thought, okay, so it's a Jewish layman who's going to come along and do something kind to this guy. The clergy were kind of despised. They certainly weren't held in high regard by lots of people. There was a lot of kind of um, suspicion around them. And he's thinking, yes, show up the clergy. The good Jewish layman is going to do what's right here. But what Jesus actually says couldn't have been more shocking. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. We've said that again and again as we've gone through Luke's gospel. We know that. In chapter 9, we saw them reject Jesus on his way through, and James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven 
You know, will, we, will we just nuke these guys now right out of the picture? That would have been no problem. Not a, they wouldn't have, not a moment would they have batted an eyelid at doing that. Such was the disdain. Samaritans had intermarried with the Assyrians. They built their own temple in Gerizim. They were seen as compromising half-breeds, religious and cultural enemies of the people of God. So the question is, why on earth does Jesus tell this story with the Samaritan as the hero? Well, I think we're supposed to see in this Samaritan the scandal of God's grace. How so? Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. So that question that Jesus asks is interesting. He doesn't say, which of these three do you think did the right thing? As if to say, you Jewish religious elite, you see, you've been shamed by this Samaritan, although that is true. But rather by deciding that this man is a neighbor, using the word neighbor to refer to this Samaritan, he's, he's identifying him with the people of God. He's a neighbor who demonstrates the love, other neighbor, uh, the love that, uh, of other neighbors that God's law requires. See, the lawyer tried to dodge the question. He tried to dodge the issue saying, who is my neighbor? But here is a Samaritan, not even batting an eyelid, stepping right in and showing himself to be a true neighbor. He loved this man in need as himself. And in doing that, demonstrated that he loved God with all his heart. See, I think Jesus sets the story up this way. I think Luke records the story this way. Remember, he's the only gospel writer to do this. And remember, his agenda is always for the outsider. We've called this series, this wide-ranging series, a savior for all. Luke has always got an eye on the weak, always got an eye on the outsider and on the unexpected. And he's doing this, I think, here to make the point about the breadth of God's grace. See, what we have here is a page one outsider, grade A, top of the list, outsider, demonstrating through his actions that he has been caught up in the grace of God. So if the lawyer is the wise and understanding of verse 21, we might say that this Samaritan here is in some ways an expression of the little children who have come humbly to Christ and received the forgiveness and salvation that he brings. The lawyer who thinks that he's on the inside with God is seen to be on the outside. And the loathsome Samaritan, despised by the people of God, has shown by his love and care that he has been met by God's scandalous grace. If our lives will tell the same story as our message, we have to embrace the reality of God's scandalous grace. And we're indebted to it ourselves because we've received Christ's salvation, despite the fact that we, I expect most of us, aren't ethnic Jews. We're outsiders who've been brought in. That in itself must humble us. But when a heart that is gripped by grace, well, when that happens, we cannot be superior or self-righteous. We can't be elitist or sectarian. You can't boast in something you see that you didn't earn. You've got no reason to look down on others when you grasp the grace of God. Because you didn't deserve it yourself. None of us could earn the salvation. That's the whole point of the first point. None of us could ever do it ourselves. It's all a free gift and you can't boast in a gift because you did nothing to achieve it. 
But this then must also affect how we think about who is worthy of our evangelism. Now, this is important, I think. See, the lawyer was scandalized and frankly disgusted that a Samaritan was the one putting the religious Jews to shame. He couldn't even say his name. Do you see verse 37? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Answer, the Samaritan. Well, no, he said, "Mm, the one who showed him mercy. We need to be careful that we don't feel the same way about God's work in the lives of people who are not like us. In London, I think it's true to say, it's probably true everywhere, but the church broadly mirrors the culture. Certainly when it comes to the social and ethnic and cultural boundaries that our culture creates, the church has its own that mirror those. If we, if Trinity West will be different in this regard, and we must, we need to ask the Lord to help us. Crossing these boundaries does not just happen. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that the gospel is for outsiders. Our church will tell the story of the gospel more accurately the more diverse we become. That means whichever group is the in-group and the way society uh, develops into tribes and groups, everybody thinks they're the in-group and despises the other group. Well, whatever group is the in-group, the gospel is for the ones on the other side of the line that you draw. Just think about it like that. And that should actually then end up taking in everyone. And can I be clear this morning that that means you. If you're not a Christian and you're with us this morning, whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you've done with your life up to this point, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God offers you forgiveness and peace with him through Jesus Christ. And he offers it to you this morning, right now. You don't need to do anything except receive the gift. See, in his life, Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. Perfect obedience every step of the way. In his death, he exhausted God's anger at our sin. And through his resurrection, he has announced his victory to the world. You can be sure that his salvation works because the resurrection is true. Jesus has done all that you need to receive as a free gift peace with the God who made you. I hold that out to you this morning, whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you've done. It is scandalous grace, and it can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you receive it? The problem of religion. The scandal of grace. And if we understand these, we will then be able to live what we say we believe through, thirdly, number three, the ethic of neighbor love. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan's love was costly. The word Uh, that is used to describe the way he feels his compassion. It is moved to the very pit of his guts. And that throws him forward into this costly love. It cost him personally. He didn't worry if the attackers were lying in wait to pounce on anybody that came to care for this man. That was a, that's a regular trick. You you put somebody out in the road who looks like they need help and, and people, um, people go to help them and then they get attacked. He didn't care about that. And he went and he gave of what he had, oil, wine, put him on his animal. 
It was costly financially. Two denarii would have paid for a couple of weeks in the bed and breakfast. And he said then after that he would cover any extra cost as well. There's no sense in which he thought, you know, well, will I get any of this back? He just did it. It cost him. And also it cost him time. And whatever he was doing, he wasn't doing nothing going down that road. Whatever he was doing, it got put on hold because of this man's needs and their priority. Having done all of this, this Samaritan then, Jesus points to him and says to this lawyer, that's what neighbor love looks like. So, verse 37, you go and do likewise. Now, the parable is often used in our context, in contemporary context, to to load people up with guilt about their failure to meet the many social needs uh, that are around us, especially in a city like ours, a community like ours, with all of the needs that are there. People say, Jesus makes it clear that the neighbor here can't be defined by social or ethnic or religious boundaries, so we need to go and love everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. I don't think that's right. What does it mean to love everyone? What does it mean to love everyone in Shepherd's Bush? Everyone in London? Everyone in England? Never mind beyond that, it becomes meaningless. You see, I think when we say we should love everyone, it's similar to saying we should love no one. The desire to do that may be very well intentioned, but if it is indiscriminate like this, it can never be more than good intentions. Rather, I think, following the Samaritan example means we consider our neighbor as anyone I think that's a really important distinction. That is someone else, not everyone else. And the contours of the parable parable help us work this through. You see, the Samaritan came on the injured man in the course of his journey along the Jericho Road. There was a very real need in front of him. He could do something to help, and so he stepped up to meet the need. There is this principle of proximity. You can't physically demonstrate neighbor love to everyone, but you can and you must to those who are right before you. That person lying at the side of the road, regardless of their background, regardless of how they got to be there. If you can do it, you go and care for them. The person who lives in your street, regardless of how jacked up their lives might be. The lady who was robbed at the cash machine you were walking past, regardless of how late you're running for your meeting or for church. It is these people that we are called to show compassion costly love too. See, how did the Jericho Road meeting come about? How did that Samaritan happen to be on that road at that time following that attack involving that man? How did it happen? Well, the answer is the providence of God. And the same God who ordains the times and places where you live and move and have your being assigns the same kind of opportunities to you. It was just such a coincidence that I was walking that route. I normally go the other way, but I was walking along. It was so lucky that I was there because that person had a need. There was no coincidence. God sovereignly ordained that opportunity for you to express neighbor love. Proximity. What are the needs around you? Don't pass by, but do your bit, even if it's costly. And that takes me to a second principle, and that is ability. A person's issues or the nature of a situation mean you aren't able to do much to help. If someone is being assaulted, 
there's a big group of people assaulting someone and you're a woman and you're on your own, you might not be able to physically rescue the person, but you will be able to do something. Don't just walk by. The people in the flat across the road have obvious social needs. You won't be able to fix everything, but you will be able to do something. Don't just ignore their need. Point is, the lawyer tries to qualify himself out of the situation. That's not what we do. We have compassion. Be easy to say, oh, well, they were 300 meters away, uh, and, I, and I was doing something else. I wasn't, I wasn't able to get there. They weren't close enough. You'll know if you're turning a blind eye, and so will God. Don't make excuses. The ethic of neighbor love involves caring in a costly and selfless, um, driven by compassion way for those that God has placed in front of you, whoever they are, wherever they're from, and whatever their issues. Friends, we have the best story in the world, and it is good news. So we want to reject the self-righteousness of religion. We want to embrace the scandal of God's grace. And as we do that and embody the ethic of neighbor love, may our lives speak the same story that we proclaim. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we praise you for the grace that we have received in the gospel. We praise you for saving us despite our sin. We praise you for the finished work of Christ that gives us assurance such that we don't need to seek to justify ourselves. We don't need to seek to earn your favor. You give us a very clear sense of how that should humble us, keep us from being self-righteous, Keep us from feeling superior to others. We pray that as we do that, we might be moved by compassion for the needs of those that you have brought into our world. The journey that we walk each day, the shops that we go to, the people that we mix with, the street that we live on, give us eyes to see the needs that we can meet and give us an unqualified commitment motivated by compassion to seek to do what we can to help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.